Citizen Reporter number 356, 7th of November, 2010. Look around you if they're sending me to jail for essentially no charges. What's next? Someone else has been writing your story, and it's time you took the pen from his hand and started writing it yourself. Greetings and welcome to another edition of CitizenReporter.org, the podcast that focuses on underreported news and global concerns, issues that affect humans in different parts of the world that I feel belong on the front pages but somehow don't get there. And today's issue is one that came to me actually years ago, and it was my late great cousin George, who one day over dinner in Brussels said, have you ever heard of Aristide de Sosa Minch? And I said, no. And suddenly I was explained the story of this extraordinary person. And ever since then, little by little, I've learned about this fantastic figure from history. And today I get to do a podcast about him with a little help from a very special guest. So let's get to it. On the line now from Long Island in New York, uh, daughter and granddaughter of Sosa Minge visa recipients, also one of the founders of the Sosa Minge Foundation, Olivia Matisse. Uh, welcome to the program, Olivia. Thank you, Mark. So uh, I found you or you found me uh, because of that video entry that I did uh, some time ago about the Sosa Minge, well, his story and also this virtual museum. Uh, but I'm going to assume that there are some people listening that don't know the story and didn't see that video, because that does happen. So let's start from the beginning, if we can. Uh, uh, the story, largely unknown, I think, to many in the world, where where other stories from World War II, like like Schindler's, I mean Schindler's List, is uh, had a that Hollywood film. Let's go to the story that started it all. Um, if you could just guide us through it. Of course. Now, you call him Sosa Mensch, and I call him Sosa Mendez, but however you pronounce it, he was one of the greatest heroes of the last century. And, uh, in fact, his act, his act of rescue during World War II has been termed the largest single act of rescue by an individual in the entire war. He is credited with having given visas to an estimated 30,000 people over a handful of days in 1940. And when you count those people and now their children and grandchildren, the people that he rescued can, can absolutely uh, fill a stadium. So um, Aristides Mendes was born in 1885 in Portugal. He came from a very distinguished family. His father was a judge, 
And um, he had a twin brother named Cesar, and they had a younger brother. So there were three boys in the family, and uh, Aristide and his brother both went to law school, so they were very well educated. They got very high marks. And then they both entered the Foreign Service, and uh, they were both posted uh, all over the world. And at some point, Aristide got married to uh, his beautiful cousin named Angelina, and Together, they had 14 children who were born in all these different countries uh, all over the world. Uh, some were born in Africa, some were born in California, some in Spain. Wherever he went, there were kids who were born. So uh, <laughs> uh, later, fast-forwarding a little bit to uh, the end of the story, which is... Um, how this hero paid a very high price for his heroism and was severely punished by his government. Uh, the family was blacklisted and all kinds of horrible things happened. But what, uh, what happened to these children is that uh, they eventually left Portugal and many of them went to these countries where they had been born and they, where they could claim some rights to citizenship or some way to, to live there. I, I want to make sure that, that people understand uh, that, that time in history. You had World War II, and Portugal is not often discussed in, in you know, the, especially I went to school in the United States, and when you learn World War II history, you learn plenty about Germany, you learn some about France and England. Now, Portugal had, of course, a dictator, and the, poli the official policy was don't take refugees. I mean, don't take anyone from outside of the country, right? Absolutely. This was this was an official policy. Yeah, the dictator's name was Salazar, and he issued a series of documents called circulars that were sent to his diplomats, who were you know posted wherever they had an embassy or consulate or whatever. And so during World War II, of course, there were a lot of refugees who were needing to leave. Right, they were uh, persecuted. They could be sent to concentration camps. Uh, they were needing to to leave Europe, and so uh, uh, Portugal is a very nice way to leave Europe because, of course, it's on the coast, and one can go from there to Brazil or the United States or any number of places. But uh, Salazar had issued this document known as Circular 14 in November of 1939, expressly forbidding uh, his diplomats from issuing such visas to, uh, to Jews, to Russians, and other refugees. There's a whole list, but the Jews and the Russians are explicitly uh, mentioned. Uh, the others are types of people with these kinds of documents or whatever. Um, so this was the document that Sousa Mendes, Sousa Mensch, hmm. violated, went against at his own personal peril in May and June, mainly, and basically May and June of 1940. 
Uh, and as I mentioned before, he issued 30,000 of these visas, an estimated. We really don't know uh, how many. Um, there were uh, newspaper accounts at the time of how many refugees were circulating in Portugal, and that's one way that this figure of 30,000 has been arrived at. Mm. Um, but the foundation that I began a short time ago with some other people that I can tell you all about. Mm. Uh, uh, one of our uh, missions, one of our desires, is to locate as many of these rescued families as we can and to obtain their testimonials. Yeah, I, and I read some of the, uh, the texts about that time, and also there's a few dramatizations that are interesting, of course. And, and I was impressed not only by what he did in terms of issuing visas, even when, uh, you know, the great risk to his own, uh, himself and his family. But then uh, I'm amazed with that, that part where he actually physically goes to the border uh, because he, he, you know, he wanted to be sure there was some way that people could get through. Um, amazing story. I, yeah. Yes, I, I can tell that story if you wish. Mm, by all means, <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right, so Sotomanch was stationed in Bordeaux, when this circular 14 was issued. He, uh, prior to that, he had been stationed in Antwerp in Belgium, and that's where he got to know the Jewish community and uh, a lot of the refugees, the war refugees who had come from Poland and Russia and elsewhere and had settled in Belgium, as a lot of them had. So um, and in Antwerp, he had a very important post. He was the head of the consular corps, so he was always representing Portugal at all of these events and uh, meeting people. He was a man about town. He was very social, so, um, and he was also well aware of what was going on with the war. But uh, one of the first uh, punishments that he received from Salazar was a demotion. He was sent from Antwerp, which was a prestigious post, and as I mentioned, he was head of the consular corps, to Bordeaux, which was seen as a much less desirable post. So uh, Aristides Mendes goes with his wife Angelina and all these many children to Bordeaux and uh, becomes the, uh, the consul there. Um, and uh, what happens is on May 10th, 1940, that's when uh, four countries were invaded by the Germans simultaneously. Uh, Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and France were all invaded on May 10th, 1940. Uh, and that's where my own connection to the story begins because that's the day my family left Brussels to try to get the heck out of Dodge, as they say. Mm -hmm. So what happened was all these refugees started trying to leave in any way they could, and um, in my family's case, they were able to catch the last train uh, to go to Paris. They were in Paris for a few days, and then they started heading south and ended up in Bordeaux, and they were in Bordeaux, um, already by whatever, the middle of May. Um, and uh, my family, that's my father, who was seven years old, his sister, Blanche, who was um, 16, or still maybe 15 at that point, mm -hmm. uh, their cousin, Charles, who was five, who was with them, their, grand their parents, which means my grandparents, mm -hmm. and then my, my father's parents, 
my father's grandparents, which means my great-grandparents, yeah. seven people in my family were all in Bordeaux and all ended up being rescued by this man. Did they know? Was it a known thing that if you went to Bordeaux, there might be a chance that there's a, you know, the consul that could help? Absolutely not. Mm. No one had any idea. No. Uh, what happened in my own family's case was that my grandfather, on the street, by chance, ran into a rabbi. Uh, and we now know who that man was. His name was Rabbi Hein Kruger. And he was very important in the whole story of Susan Mendes and his rescue operation. But so my grandfather, by chance, ran into this rabbi who said, go to the Portuguese consulate. The, uh, the consul there is giving out visas. Hmm. So May 31st, uh, which was a Friday, uh, uh, four of the seven members of the family got their visas. The other three got theirs on Monday, June 3rd, mm. and their names are recorded in uh, the visa registry book, which still survives. And that rabbi was the, the rabbi of Antwerp, who, as you said, uh, a very important role in the whole story. He's credited as the person who uh, inspired, I've heard it said, inspired uh, Sosa Mintz to, to do what he finally did. Uh. Right. He was not the rabbi of Antwerp. He oh. was. He had been living in Antwerp with his family. Uh, he, I believe, was Polish. Oh. Uh, he he was a refugee like everybody else, but he uh, took it upon himself to uh, do a great act of moral courage himself, which was that, um, well, he went up to Sousa Mendes and asked for a visa. <laughs> to Portugal, and uh, Susan Mendes says, I can't do it because there's the circular 14. Anyway, convinces him to do it, and then Susan Mendes hands the man, Kruger, these visas and says, okay, you are now free to go, and Kruger says, thank you very much, but I'm not free to go, not as long as all of my brothers and sisters, meaning all the refugees, as long as they are still here, I am not free to go. Mm -hmm. You have to give visas to everyone. Mm. And so, of course, this plunged Aristide Sousa Mendes into a crisis. Does he follow the law of his country, the, the official uh, documents that have been issued by the Prime Minister uh, Salazar, or does he follow this rabbi's uh, suggestion, uh, which of course is the morally right thing to do, but it means uh, punishment for him and his family down the line, and he's already quite well aware of that. Uh, so, uh, Susan Mensch was, uh, a religious man. He was a devout Catholic, and he started to pray. Uh, he also reportedly, um, uh, absented himself. He went to bed. He went into his room, and some reports are that he was in there for three days. I'm not sure exactly. He was tossing and turning, praying, wrestling with his conscience, whatever he had to do, but... Um, June 17th is considered to be the day that um, was the quote-unquote act of conscience of Aristide de Sousa Mendes. And what happened was on that day, presumably he, uh, well, reportedly I should say, he emerged and announced the decision 
said yes, he had thought about it, and he had decided that he was now going to issue visas to everyone who asked, free of charge, regardless of race, religion, nationality, political opinions, any of that. Hmm. So you wanted a visa through Portugal to the rest of the world, he was going to give it to you. And so, indeed, they um, they do eventually make it to Portugal. So here's the part where it becomes harder to to find all that history in one place. Um, fortunately, I'm talking to you, and your family, of course, was there, as you've, you've talked about. What, eventually, they make it through Spain to Portugal. and right. And ha- what happens from there? Well, so um, these refugees... Uh, they were not allowed to stop in Spain. They were only allowed to go through Spain. So they, they, for the most part, crossed the bridge. Uh, uh, there's a bridge in Hendai in the yes. south of France, a bridge to Spain. So they crossed on foot, for the most part, and they boarded a train there in Spain yeah. that was a, a sort of a sealed train that went all the way through Spain and basically then dumped the passengers uh, on the Portuguese side of the border. I think they still stopped. run that train, actually. They put some windows in it, but uh, I know that I line. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's the Hendai train. Yeah, but, uh, so. Right, okay. The, right, so uh, according to my dad, there were 2,000 people on his train, right. and they all got out at the border town. And uh, the, uh, well, at that point, apparently my grandfather and some other people went to Lisbon uh, to find out, you know, what could be done with all these refugees, and they were able to work out some deal whereby uh, certain families would go to this village, and others would go to the, this village, and the whole system worked out. And so wow. you were told, if this was your name, this was the village where you were supposed to go, and uh, the villagers uh, then took over from there. Okay. Uh, and uh, some people stayed a few days, some a few weeks, some a few months, uh, but for the most part, they then went to other places in the world because Portugal uh, had uh, a law about these refugees. Well, they didn't want them in, but then once they were in, they had to deal with the fact that they existed. So then there was another law that was passed uh, saying that they couldn't settle there. They had to have a destination somewhere else in the in the world, and I think there was a some sort of time limit imposed of six months or something. They had to have their boat ticket by this certain period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what happened in my particular family. Uh, they went to Brazil, wow. and they were in, in Brazil for about a year and a half, and eventually were allowed into New York. Because the United States doesn't have uh, a very illustrious history either when it comes to World War II. Uh, they turned away boats of refugees. I mean, they did all kinds of things that we now forget. But there were very few places in the world that were hospitable to refugees in those dark days. Yeah. Uh, and, and you brought up an interesting fact, which is the, the forgetting of history, uh, which, which I find to be an issue, no, no matter what country you live in. Um, so, let's go on to the to the foundation. I mean, first of all, Sosa Minge, he, he dies in relative obscurity, I mean, at least on the world stage. Um, he, di- he died in poverty and disgrace. So, yeah, before we get to the foundation, let's... Yeah. 
I, I realize that we've been sort of telling the story piecemeal, and people may not be <laughs> really understanding what happened. All right, so the man, uh, he was stationed in Bordeaux. Oh, right, yes. he, he has, let's, let's start back on even before June 17th. Okay, so May 10th, 1940 is a crucial date because that's when these countries were invaded. You have all these refugees on the move. Mm-hmm. Then June 14th becomes another important date because that's the date that Paris fell. And there's a very famous photograph of the Eiffel Tower with the Nazi flag on top, you mm-hmm. know, all these tanks rolling through Paris, these Nazi tanks. And so that's when you get a whole other layer of refugees who start to be on the move. So after June 14th, the southern cities of Marseille, Bordeaux, and all of those cities were just overrun with hundreds of thousands of people trying to leave. Yes. So this is the situation that gives rise to uh, the, basically, uh, to Kruger's ultimatum to Aristide de Mensch, you need to save this mass of humanity outside your window. <laughs> yes, yeah. So he gets up June 17th and says, okay, and he starts doing that, and he they, assemble, they start the assembly line process, consisting of Aristide Sizemensch, his, his wife Angelina, his son Pedro Nuno, um, his, well, Kruger, uh, let's see, uh, Jose Seabra, who was the consular assistant, and that might have been it. So this small group of people have this assembly line going where one person collects the passports, the next person stamps them, <laughs> whatever, and it ultimately leads to Sozomensch who finds the passports, and uh, sometimes his son who's forging his signature. Uh, so they're just doing whatever they can mm-hmm. to get these documents signed. So they continue this day and night for three days, so that's the 17th, the 18th, and the 19th. Um, by then, the Portuguese secret police is on to the story, and um, they realize they have to leave Bordeaux, so they head to the town of Bayonne, where mm-hmm. there's another consular office, but the consul there is refusing to issue these visas. So Sosamanch pushes the guy aside, and he starts doing it out on the street in front of the Portuguese consulate in Bayonne. <laughs> and the president of our board of the foundation, Lissy Jarvik, who is a very renowned physician, she's now 86 years old, at the time she was 16, her family was able to get to Bayonne on this exact day when Sosamanch was there signing those visas. Mm. Wow. So, I mean, it's just mind-boggling to think of the coincidences involved in any of these rescued families being alive. Yes. So uh, so he's in Bayonne until he's chased out of there. Then he goes to uh, Hende, does the same thing. Then he goes to the border at Irun, yes. I think it is. It is, yeah. yeah. Uh, and there... Uh, there was a border guard who was refusing to let these refugees through, even though they had visas and signed passports, because by then Salazar had issued um, uh, a, a warning. Uh, an he, order. He, yeah, he knew a they warning, were coming. An order. He did, he, he'd issued many warnings, but now he issued an order mm. saying these visas are now null and void, and the Spanish and Portuguese. Uh, uh, 
border guards are to disregard these visas. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's somebody, uh, the border guard at Irun is following this new order saying, okay, these are null and void. So somehow, uh, Sozomensch gets word that there is a, an obscure border post up in the mountains somewhere where the guy doesn't have a telephone and wouldn't probably have heard this order. <laughs> right. And the story is that he escorts all of those refugees through the mountain to this post, and he personally way, opens the gate and lets them all through. No. So the heroism of this man is just beyond anything I, I can say or anyone can say. Hmm. And and so afterwards, I mean, he gets punished. I mean, the the, the government of Portugal not pleased, <laughs> um, and 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 that's where he loses everything. He is called back to Lisbon. He is put on trial. He is found guilty of treason of putting the country of Portugal at risk because Portugal was officially neutral even though privately Salazar was Mm -hmm. pro-Hitler. Officially neutral means that if you're not neutral, if you're on the side of, if you're officially on the side of Hitler and the fascists, well then you're going to be bombed by Great Britain. And if you're officially on the side of the Allies, the United States and France, well, then you're going to be bombed by Germany. <laughs> right. So it was a very precarious line. Port- uh, Salazar was determined to keep Portugal out of the war, and so by his act of heroism, Sozomensch, uh, quote-unquote, put his country at risk. So that was the argument and the basis for this trial. Hmm. Um, now, the trial was not a big public trial where this man's heroism could be, uh, you know... Yeah, it would be, it would, in many ways, it would be promoted, be showcased. And so forth. No, it was a private, uh, they called it an administrative trial. It was a way simply to get rid of this man in a legal manner, and in fact to turn him into a quote-unquote non-person, as as happened in these fascist states, happened under Stalin and Mussolini and so forth. People were turned into, any enemies of the state were turned into non-people <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> who didn't have the right to work or, you know, collect a pension or anything of that nature. And this is exactly what happened. Hmm. So Aristides Mensch was fired from his job. He His pension was taken away from him. He had all these children, so he was no longer able to support his family. He was prevented from practicing his profession, which was law. Mm-hmm. No one could hire him. His children could not attend university. They could not get meaningful work. Uh, they were shunned socially. People would cross the street to avoid being seen with them or speaking to them. Uh, they, so they were crushed by the regime, and uh, they uh, were able to get their meals uh, in the soup kitchen of the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, which was the society aiding the Jewish refugees. Hmm. Uh, so uh, that's it. They were getting their meals in the soup kitchen, and the Jewish community, such as it was, was paying their medical bills, and that's what happened. Well, wow. 
And so, uh, eventually, uh, I mean, I have read that uh, upon his death, he had asked his, uh, and, and hoped that his children could clear his name and, and restore his name. Yes. Um, this eventually did happen. I mean, there was uh, the dictatorship in Portugal uh, by 74 was, was pushed out. And uh, once upon a time, I remember a president by the name of Mario Suárez, who uh, is a pretty nice guy. And uh, among the things that he did during his time is he did indeed uh, restore, uh, make an apology to the Sousa Minge family and restored his, uh, his ambassadorship uh, post posthumously. Oh. Right. Right, right. So, yeah, so let's talk about what happened then. So, uh, first of all, Angelina died. She had a series of strokes and died in 1948. Mm-hmm. I'm, I hope I'm getting that right. Then Susan Mendes remarried. Uh, his second wife was André Sibial. She was a French woman that he had met in France, and they had a daughter. So, in fact, he had 15 children, all told. Hmm. Um, he then died in 1954 in poverty and disgrace and erased from history, as we've just, you know, talked about. Um, and then his children started just desperately trying to clear this man's name. And it was a very hard struggle, and it lasted for decades. Um, and the first uh, recognition that he got, posthumously, of course, was from the State of Israel. This was in 1966 when he was declared to be uh, quote-unquote righteous among the nations, which is the highest honor that's given by the State of Israel mm-hmm. um, to recognize someone's heroism during World War II. So he was declared uh, to be that. He was the first diplomat, in fact, to be so recognized. And so... Um, so that gave a little bit of consolation to the family, but then they kept pushing and pushing, and eventually the United States, uh, there was uh, Tony Coelho in Congress and Henry Waxman, who took an interest in this case, and they were able to have a proclamation in the U.S. Congress honoring this man. That was in 1987. So this is now 20 years later, uh, and the two of them put a lot of pressure on Portugal so that eventually, yes, Suarez did the right thing, Mm -hmm. which was to persuade the Portuguese parliament to, um, to undo the punishment to pay reparations to the family uh, in the form of uh, back pay from 1940 to 1954 Mm -hmm. uh, to promote him posthumously to the post of ambassador. They gave him a standing ovation, all of that, in 1988. Mm. So with that money that the family received, they were able to set up a foundation in Portugal whose task was to repurchase their own home, the family home, which had been forfeited to the bank when Sosa Mendes died Mm. in order to cover the debts. And this home still exists. It's called Casa do Passal, but it's been vacant since 1954. Mm. It now belongs to this Portuguese foundation, um, but... They have the, the the house, but they want to convert it into a memorial and a museum and uh, a place, 
an international destination for people wanting to learn the history. Um, it would be, it will be once it happens, the very first Holocaust museum in the country of Portugal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll be, of course, the first museum to this great hero. So the way I got involved was um, a few months ago, I was on a Facebook chat <laughs> with one of these grandchildren. There are many grandchildren scattered throughout the world, and by now I've met uh, a, a large number of them, hmm. only one in person, but the others by phone, by Facebook, by email, whatever. And so one of these in, in Portugal, Francisco, he and I were chatting by Facebook, and he said, you know, we have this house now uh, that the family has owned since 2001. That's when they were able to buy it. But we've been unable to raise the money for it in Portugal to do what we are wanting to do, which is to create this museum. So I answered casually on this Facebook chat, so let's raise it in the U.S., Yes, And that, that was three months ago, and now we have a foundation. Uh, one thing I wanted to make sure is that we talk a little bit about who's involved in the foundation. I'm looking at them on the screen, so if, if you could just go over a little uh, uh, who you all are. Okay. Well, the president of our foundation, as I mentioned, uh, is herself a visa recipient. Her name is Agassi Jarvik. She's a very well-known physician. A retired professor of medicine from UCLA. Uh, the vice president is one of the grandchildren, Sebastian Michael Mendez. He is uh, an artist living in Washington State. Uh, then we have uh, another grandchild of uh, Susan Mendez, and that's Sheila Abranches. Um, and then there are two other members of families that were rescued. My and Harry Osterreicher, who's a technology consultant living uh, in Seattle. Uh, and um, two other people on the board, John Crisostomo is a Portuguese-American humanitarian activist who's worked for many years to try to tell the story of Susa Mendes, and he's uh, also been involved in recognizing other Holocaust rescuers, and he's been involved in other causes. He's just a mover and a shaker. Hmm. Uh, and also on the board is Miguel Avila, who is a photojournalist and publisher, and he's the assistant editor of the Portuguese Tribune. So it's a mix of Portuguese and of Portuguese Americans and Jewish Americans, uh, all working together. Uh, we also have a director of public relations who is another grandson of the hero, and his name is Carlos uh, well, he's always gone by Carlos Mendez, but he should. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, that's who we are, and we are uh, incorporated in the state of Seattle, but we are functioning in all 50 states, coast to coast. Mm-hmm. We want to do events everywhere, yeah. and uh, we're raising money for this uh this uh, museum in Portugal, so we really uh, think of ourselves as doing international work. Yeah. Are, are there foundations in other countries uh, besides yes. Portugal and the U.S.? Uh, oh, I see. Uh, foundations in other countries. You, well, there are there are certainly groups in other countries. There's a very active group in France, uh, which is, of course, where these events took place. Right. So they consider this to be a French story, hmm. which it, it very much was. 
so there are four countries that are directly concerned with the story. Portugal, France, the United States, where a lot of these refugees ended up, and of course Israel, hmm. where other refugees ended up, and, you know, of course Israel is concerned with the story naturally. Yes. So, uh, however, ironically, this man is known in Portugal now. He's taught in, in school. I mean, school children know who he is. And he's completely unknown in France, the United States, and Israel. Mm. So we are really wanting to change that. Yes. Yeah, that is one of the interesting things. Who gets, who becomes famous, uh, you know, because there are heroes that, that are known, and then who somehow doesn't make the, the, the whatever it is, the cut for some reason. Um, so, yeah, this. I mean, this is definitely... Anyone who hears this story uh, who isn't somehow moved, <laughs> uh, well, that would surprise me. Um, so, so that is part of the task of the foundation. I mean, you, you mentioned the house, but also the you know the raising of the money, um, and indeed things like what we're doing right now. I mean, uh, uh, spreading the word, telling the story that is not told, uh, especially for example in the U.S. Right. Um, yeah. Right. It's very very important what you're doing with. Uh with this, what we're doing right now. Yeah. Absolutely. This is what we want to be doing. Yeah. I, I find it amazing as, as a Portuguese person as well, uh, Portuguese-American, that the foundation is uh, it's, it's even based in, and that may just be for, for practical reasons, in Seattle, Washington. I don't know any Portuguese people in Seattle. <laughs> well, one of these grandchildren Ended lives in Washington. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, uh, Sebastian Michael Mendez. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about the family name for, for a minute, because, mm. you know, they were all these children, 15 children. Well, they all changed the name, because the name Sousa Mendes, Sousa Mench, in Portugal, became like poison. Oh. With that name, you couldn't be hired, you couldn't attend university, you couldn't have a meaningful life. So uh, most of them dropped the S-O-U-S-A, the Sousa part of the mm -hmm. name, and became simply Mendes. Okay. And one branch became Abranches, and that's because the full name is Aristide de Sousa Mendes do Amaral e Abranches. Mm -hmm. uh, so, some of these, you know, noble families, aristocratic families, have these long names. So these children picked and chose from this long name something that was not Sousa Mendes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, right, yeah, sort of yeah. reinvented themselves, became anonymous in a sense. So this grandson is Sebastian Michael Mendez. So a lot of these grandchildren are now simply Mendez or Abranches. Hmm. Yeah, I see, yeah. I'm looking down the list of board of directors, and I see a Sh Sheila Abranches. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Granddaughter. Right. She, she's a granddaughter, exactly right. Hmm. And it was her father, John Paul Abranches, who uh, was so influential in getting the recognition for this man and getting Suarez to do the right thing. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, an amazing story. And so the work of the foundation, uh, uh, only a few, at this point, is it even a year old? It's, it's a young foundation. No, no, no. <laughs> That's right. Well, we were incorporated yeah. in the state of Washington, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. on September 24th, 2010. Yes. So that is a little over a month ago. Yeah, okay. We have filed all the paperwork with the IRS to be a fully tax-exempt charitable organization, okay. which means that any donation to the foundation is fully tax-deductible. Mm. And our goal is two things. We have a two-part mission. Number one is to raise money 
for this museum, to create this memorial and museum, which we feel is so important. Mm-hmm. And the other part of the mission is to sponsor U.S.-based projects yeah. that honor this man's legacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know what I'm thinking of? Actually, um, we didn't talk about this before the interview, but I, my parents are uh, Portuguese school teachers, and as a kid, I've gone to Portuguese schools all over North America. That was part of the, the yearly thing. We would have a conference, and so we'd go to one of the big communities. And uh, this is definitely something that in, uh, in Portuguese schools in North America, people could be uh, learning about and should be learning about. And that crowd usually, besides taking field trips and so on within North America, they often go home or go back, as we should say, to, uh, to Portugal. So this would definitely be a place uh, of great interest uh, great. to go. Great. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe you can help with us with that. Yeah. Oh, I'll get right on it when we're finished. <laughs> Terrific. Yes. yes. All right. Well, yeah. so let me make sure to give out some of the websites to people listening. Uh, first of all, there's the Sosa Minch Foundation, the foundation's website. And uh, I won't even bother with the complete spelling. Some people can hear it, Sosa Mendes Foundation. I'll put it in the, uh, in the entry on citizenreporter.org. People can click on it and follow it. Uh, you also have a presence on uh, Facebook, right? That's correct, uh-huh. Okay, I'll make sure to put a link to that, because, of course, many people are using Facebook to find and, and surf the web and, and manage their interests these days. Uh, so that's and, another and, good one. And it's so funny because this is so much of a Facebook story at so many <laughs> levels. We haven't talked about that at all, but so much of this foundation was able to happen because of Facebook. So it's it's mind-boggling to me as well from yeah. that standpoint. Well, it's it's I mean, just looking down the list, it's a lot of people who had, you know, have a common link, but they're scattered all over the world and maybe haven't had constant contact over the last few years. So I can understand how a, a system like Facebook w- would definitely work for such a such a purpose. Yeah. That's it's great. Right. Uh-huh. That's great. Yeah. Okay. So uh, uh, those websites out of the way. Uh, thanks so much for for taking the time to tell the story. I, I have the feeling we'll speak again, uh, hopefully on the podcast about how it's going. Uh, I'm also I'll put out a video soon where I do a little virtual visit to the uh, the museum. I should say a visit to the virtual museum. And the, the museum. Yeah. You, you did that recently, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And I'll, uh, uh, but I'll do it proper and. Um, also, uh, yeah, eventually, because I do go to the area of Viseu fairly, well, once a year almost, uh, I'll see about uh, <laughs> how close I can get to the house. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know what the, the state of things are in that, in that region, but I'll, I'll, I'll head over. Wonderful. At least, at least I can take a picture. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> right. Well, well, there are many pictures that are, are on the Internet and have been published. There was... Just a big article that appeared uh, a couple of weeks ago in London, mm. in the newspaper The Independent. Uh, it was uh, one of the main stories in the Sunday Magazine section of that newspaper, all about this hero and introducing our new foundation. So that was quite a nice way for us to be launched. Mm. And I know on your on the website uh, there's a testimonial section, and I've watched a few of them. Um, also, a very interesting and good idea in the era of. YouTube and the power of video. That's right. Yeah. So our website is actually a place where people can get all kinds of information. They can also order uh, things. They can order books and DVDs. And when they order uh, 
through our website, the order is processed by Amazon, but the foundation gets a certain percentage of each order that originates from our website. So I would encourage any listeners who want to buy the biography called A Good Man in Evil Times or want to buy this wonderful DVD called Diplomats for the Damned that was done by the History Channel mm-hmm. about 10 years ago, that they do so from our website. Okay, will do. All right, well, Dr. Olivia Matis, thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, we look forward to hearing how it's going in the future uh, uh, soon. <laughs> Mark, this was a real pleasure for me. Thank you. A nossa vida foi de novo revirada some final notes on today's program. First of all, it came to my attention that I was mispronouncing Olivia's last name. It is, in fact, Olivia Mattis. So if anyone ever asks you who you heard interviewed on the program, it was definitely Olivia Mattis. And a big thank you uh, for her to her for taking the time to be on this program. It was a pleasure, and we've had some further emailing where I've learned even more about her family's story. And over time, of course, uh, we'll surely do another podcast and indeed when I go uh, the next time I go to Portugal which should be in the next few months I will see uh, if I can get to the house and see the Sousa Minj, uh, house so of course I'll bring my video camera and you'll go along with me in the meantime if you want to leave a comment if you want to look up more of my programming maybe this is the first time that you're joining me go over to citizenreporter.org I have been doing this podcast for more than well six years at this point and uh, I'd be glad if you look through the back catalog. There's also text and video entries. And to all the Portuguese people that have tuned in for this specific episode, muito obrigado e é um grande prazer de ter vocês lá ao ouvir este programa. All right, enough out of me for today. You know the website and you know what I do, and I'm thankful that you're here listening. Until next time, take care. See ya. When the garbage workers struck here in 1968 and the walls of these buildings echoed with the cry, I am a man, they were writing their story. Martin Luther King came here to help them tell it, only beat a shot dead on the balcony of the Lorraine Hotel. Motel. The bullet killed him. But it couldn't kill the story because once the people start telling their story, you can't kill it anymore.